Last Sunday, if you've been journeying with us, we started this uh, exploration of what it's like to be in a waiting room, to be in a place where we could be frustrated or even fearful about the future that is ahead, a place of uncertainty, an uncomfortable in-between where we're not quite there yet and we don't know what's around the corner and we kind of have to wait. And as part of that series, we looked at David's life and a good choice that he had made, a cho choice to trust God. And I encourage you to watch the previous message because that might be very helpful to you. And we're going to continue to explore in God's word some of the good choices we can make in the midst of a season of feeling like we are in a waiting room when either fears or frustrations can confront us. Because to be really frank, we're all dealing with these kind of things with deferred hopes and unfulfilled dreams, with a sense of not being there yet. And maybe some of the things that we wished would be in our lives, not being there. How, how do we cope? And let me just twist this a little bit. Not just how do we cope, but how do we thrive when we are in a waiting room situation? And once again, the Bible is going to help us as we will learn together. And this morning, the choice, the good choice I want us to make in a waiting room is to pray. And we're going to journey with the early church, with the early believers, as they show us what to do in a waiting room situation by choosing to pray. So again, I want to build a little bit of a picture and a backdrop for our story. And this is what's happening at the time there. We pick up the story when Jesus is being crucified. And that must have been a huge disappointment and a great blow to the expectations of those newly um, formed disciples of Jesus. Those people who started following Jesus and started calling themselves Jesus followers or disciples. And they, they dashed were hoped. They, they didn't see it coming. They didn't expect a crucifixion. They expected Jesus to go into Jerusalem and reestablish a new political power or a new worship system, uh, something that would be veiled in kindness and acts of kindness in the healing of the sick and the proclamation of the good news of forgiveness. Yet everything was changed when Jesus died on the cross and the roller coaster journey took a, a, a nosedive. But three days later, Jesus rises from the dead and he begins to appear over the next 40 days to many of these disciples. And suddenly they pick up enthusiasm, they pick up hope. And suddenly it's like all their dashed hopes are being revived because Jesus is alive. And then there's another turn in this roller coaster journey. And Jesus, after those 40 days, is ascending to heaven. And he lives with them a promise and a mandate. He calls them, and this is the mandate, to go into the whole world and be his disciples and make other disciples. And the promise is that in that task of making other disciples, they will not be alone, but they will have a Holy Spirit that Jesus had already talked about before. And if you want to read more about this, just read the Gospel of John chapters 14 and 16. And Jesus says, I will send one to you who will be your comforter, your counsellor, who will be the one that will convict people of sin. 
So as he's ascending into heaven, Jesus is saying to those disciples, wait, that favorite word of yours and mine, wait, wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit will come upon you and he will enable you to be my witnesses. This is Acts 1.8. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus ascends into heaven. And this is where we pick up the story. And you're wondering, well, what next? And again, it looks like they're taking a nosedive on that roller coaster journey. Okay, so Jesus was crucified. Bad. Jesus was risen from the dead. Great. Jesus is ascending into heaven. Not so great because we're back on our own in a very difficult situation. And the disciples of Jesus could have been finding themselves in a place of fear because just as Jesus had been crucified, they were in danger of being persecuted and punished. Also, they could have been incredibly frustrated by the lack of clarity about what they were meant to do. How is this going to pan out? What's the plan? What's the agenda? What's the strategy? What's our five-year plan? They don't know anything. Because the only thing that Jesus had told them is, say it after me, wait. That's the situation of being in a waiting room. Uncomfortable, frustrating, filling with your anxiety. So I'm asking the question, what are these believers going to do? And here is where we pick up the story. As we read in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 onwards, all the way to 14. When the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, that's the place where Jesus ascended into heaven, a Sabbath day's walk from the city, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present there were Peter, John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Altheus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. And here is their choice. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In the waiting room, the early church, not yet formed, the disciples of Jesus, Yes, probably a little bit disappointed because Jesus had ascended and had gone away from them. I'm making that choice in the waiting room to pray. They could have had the option of panicking and thinking, this is terrible. This isn't going according to what we expected. We thought Jesus was going to be with us all the time. We thought Jesus was going to be leading us. And now he's gone. So could it, they could have really panicked about their future. Or maybe those who were real doers, and you know the type, and we probably can identify with one of the two different reactions. Some people panic and other people plan. They thought we've got to do something about it. Some were moping around, feeling really disappointed and discouraged, and they could have just wallowed in that kind of a situation. Or others would have said, hey, we need to plan. We need to get going. I mean, we know Jesus said, wait, but we can't just wait. Maybe he didn't 
mean weight. Maybe what he meant was something weight and plan. But they didn't. They didn't panic and they didn't plan. Instead, they prayed. And that's a surprising reaction. And I love the fact that when they are praying, they're united in prayer. Luke is saying they all, all, you can underline that, they all joined together. All together. All together. They are all in this together and the praying happens when they all gather together. And everything about this was fairly dangerous. Because if they were going to be persecuted and if they were going to be chased and if they were going to be arrested, a gathering was not a place you wanted to be. They could have easily prayed on their own in their own homes. They could have set up a Zoom. Oh, actually, they didn't have a Zoom then. They could have just played, prayed in ones and twos. But no, no, they made the choice of praying all of them, it says, together. That's a sign of unity that is so sensational in the early believers. And that's the sign of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You're not on your own. You're joining together, all together with other believers. You're different. You now have a family, a spiritual family where you belong and you're part of and you show that sense of allegiance by coming together to pray. And this is what they did. And the other thing that really strikes me about the choice to pray, it wasn't just their unity in prayer, but their regularity, their constancy in prayer. It says they all joined together constantly. So there isn't a sense of a part-time thing, one event, they did, they got together, they prayed, hey, we've done the prayer, and then we get to the real business. No, there was a perpetual sense of praying together. This was part of their natural spiritual rhythm. Uh, of a community that was praying constantly. Prayer was not a side issue. Prayer was not a bookend. Prayer was not an add-on. Prayer was not an afterthought. Prayer was it. They made the choice to pray all together constantly. And that is incredible. And then the story rolls forward. And we find that after their waiting room experience, as they prayed together constantly on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is being poured upon them. People are mesmerized at the event. Peter stands up and preaches to them about Jesus and about salvation and about becoming a follower of Jesus. And many people respond. And guess what? They continue in prayer. But later on, as we journey in the book of Acts, I want to show to you that this waiting room choice of praying wasn't just right there at the beginning. Sometimes people do that. Sometimes people experience something amazing at a certain stage in their life and they would say, hey, that was just for then. No, this is part of the norm for the followers of Jesus. So Peter and John heal a man and then they preach the gospel and the authorities are not pleased and they're being arrested and threatened to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. I mean, a simple thing. You can carry on doing whatever you want. Just don't mention Jesus. And Peter and John said, we can't do that. We've got a higher authority, God himself, that we have got to submit to. And we cannot stop preaching about Jesus. And at that time, they returned back to the church 
who had two of their key leaders being arrested. Now, what do you think they were going to do? And again, the options are probably the same. They could have been panicking or planning. They could have been panicking about what we're going to do now. Peter and John have been arrested. They are amazing. Peter was the beloved disciple that, 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 that loved Jesus, followed Jesus. And yes, he had a, a bit of a screw up by betraying Jesus. But also he was the one that Jesus left up as a key leader. John was such a close friend of Jesus. He wasn't just a disciple, but he was the beloved disciple who was so close to Jesus. And we've lost these two guys that were so significant. What are we going to do now? We're in a waiting room situation. They've been arrested. Maybe they're going to come after us as well. Or they could have planned. I mean, I don't know they were crazy enough to think, oh, can we get these guys out? Can we do a breakout? Can we go and bribe the authorities? We, we, we must have a plan. Maybe we can replace them. Maybe we can start doing something else. No, they don't panic and they don't plan. Guess what they do? They pray. In a waiting room where their key leaders have been arrested and threatened, not to speak about Jesus, they gather together to pray. And that's where they, 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 are, they, they are found. When Peter and John are being released, Acts chapter 4, verses 23 onwards. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And then they prayed to God. And the key content of their prayer to God, the cry of their heart, is simply this. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus and after they prayed Luke is saying the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly in the waiting room in the face of adversity just like they did in the face of uncertainty in the place of adversity in that waiting room they make the choice to pray again together they pray and they cry out to God. I love that sense of unity. It, it would have been so practical for them to be scattered and it would have been safe. But they don't make a safe choice. They choose unity. They stick together. And they are confident in their prayer. When they pray, they call God, O oh, sovereign Lord. In other words, you are the king. You're the ultimate ruler. We know we have authorities who have power and they've arrested our leaders, but we remind ourselves that ultimately you are the king of the universe. And they pray these bold prayers and they're biblical. There's a, there's a biblical quotation in it. Instead of a wish list, they pray for more missional power. It's not an inward looking prayer. It's not a self-centered prayer. It's not a God keep us safe. Just give us cuddles. Keep us safe. Look after ourselves. Make us feel better about ourselves. No, they say, God, help us to represent you well. Help us to speak to other people with courage. And as we do that, show them your power and love through the supernatural signs that could be coming through you. I love those kind of prayers. They're powerful prayers. They make the choice in two different examples. In the face of uncertainty, they pray. 
in the face of adversity, they pray. What should we do when in a waiting room situation? What should we do when we're being faced with uncertainty or adversity? We would do well to learn what the early church believers have done. They have made that choice to pray. There is so much talk, particularly in these times, about having a good emotional, physical, mental sense of well-being. So how do you get to that? Well, first of all, you probably need to admit if it's either physical or emotional, you've got to admit that something is wrong that needs fixing. And then you need to look at some of the changes and identify some of the key changes that you need to make. And then you need to take baby steps. You don't change everything overnight, but you make some baby steps. And then sometimes those baby steps, it goes well. And sometimes you stumble and fall and you need to pick yourself up and you need to just keep repeating those baby steps in the changes and you progress on and on and on. You know, that's significant with regards to prayer. A lot of people are very intimidated when it comes to prayer. But I think it's so important just as much as we're looking after our physical, mental, emotional well-being. If we want to look after our spiritual well-being, we need to make those steps. Identify that there's a problem. And for me, I would say I am not praying enough. Maybe begin to look at what I need to do. And every single one of us would need to take certain steps, baby steps, in actually engaging with prayer more. And then sometimes we fall and we mess up and we forget to pray or we don't engage or we go through a dry season. What do you do? You pick yourself up and keep on doing the baby steps and you will continue to progress as you do that. The same is true spiritually. I love the way Paul E. Miller, writing about prayer, said these words. Here's his definition of prayer. Prayer is meant to be a conversation where your life and your God meet. God wants to do something bigger than simply answering our prayers. The act of praying draws God into my life and begins to change me. The prayer in very subtle ways. That's why it's such a big battle, because it brings us closer to God. And there is somebody out there who doesn't want us to be close to God. That's why it's so incredibly powerful and rewarding because it brings us closer to God. But I love that sense that prayer is that conversation where our real life and God meet together. So what can we do in terms of developing our prayer life? Let me make some suggestions. And some are for you and some are for us. In other words, some are personal and some are corporate. For you, for me, personally, I would encourage if you're struggling with prayer, First and most important thing is you need to know the password. When Jesus is teaching the disciples about prayer, he's teaching them to pray like this. Our Father. That's the password. You need to have a relationship with God. You cannot just simply come to God in prayer if you don't have a relationship with God. I mean, I I, I could go to random people in our church and uh, say to them, um, I'd like you to write my name in your will and to leave me some of that stuff that you've made in your life, some of those houses that you have, or maybe you can leave me your car. 
that would be a little bit dumb because the only thing that I can inherit is actually from my father. So I need to have a relationship with my father in order to be his son and in order to inherit and even in order to have access at some of the things that he has. And therefore, it's the same spiritually speaking. We need to have a relationship with God. And in order to have a relationship with God, we need to recognize that we're sinners and that we need his help. We need to recognize that Jesus' death on the cross brings about that gift of forgiveness and salvation and come back to God. Several weeks back, we, we looked at the story that Jesus tells of the two brothers. And one brother left his father, went away from home, rebelled, lived a sinful life, and then came to his senses and came back with a sorry heart and was welcomed by his father. That's what I'm talking about. That's what Jesus is trying to say. If you want to pray, you need to have a relationship with the Father. You need to know the password. That's the password. The password is Jesus. Through knowing Jesus, receiving his gift of grace, receiving his salvation and beginning to follow him, we've got a password that gives us access into the very throne room of this universe where God is king. So that's the most important thing for every single one of us personally. We need to know the password. We need to have a relationship with God through Jesus and be able to call him our father. And the best thing I can say in terms of learning how to pray or developing our prayer life, read the book of Psalms, because that will teach us a language of prayer where real life meets with a real God. The other thing that would be helpful again is just to read Jesus's teaching when he taught the disciples to pray our father. That will give us a very helpful way not to copy. I mean, we can use those words, but not to copy them, but to be inspired on how to pray. Because Jesus is teaching us what a good content of a prayer life would have those ingredients in. And you can find that prayer in Matthew's gospel. The other thing that I encourage you to do is Maybe as you read your Bible, pray through what you read. Whatever you read, turn to prayer. Whether it's something that you discover about God, just turn it to praise. Whether it's something that you find a challenge, just pray that God will help you to live that kind of life. Another thing is pray for what you want. Be honest. When Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray, he says, pray like this. Give us this day our daily bread. It's okay to come to God and be real. And the psalmist is very often very real. When he's cheesed off, when he's angry, when he's disappointed, when he's joyful, when he's frustrated, he expresses all those feelings. And it's okay to come with that to God. The other thing that you can do that I find helpful is write lists of things that you, people, causes you want to pray for. And that way there's a focus to your prayer instead of kind of thinking, oh, I don't know what to, what to pray for. You can pull out one of your lists and maybe there are people in the church. If you're part of the church at CFM, you can get hold of a directory uh, and, and, and pray through the different names of the people in the church. Maybe you've got friends, you've got family, you've got people that you work with. Maybe just walk around your neighborhood and just pray for your neighborhood. Pray for the people that live in those houses. Pray for the school, pray for the teachers. Pray for the health centers. There are so many things that you can pray for. Just get going. That'll be an important thing. And make a plan to do that. But there's something that's not just you, me personally, but us. Something that we need to do. And I think it's so important to pray with others. That's why 
it, it's a biblical thing to say we need to pray together as a church. And currently on the different Zooms, for those of you who can connect with the Zooms, you can come and join us and pray. Now, I know that some people are saying, do you know what, Christy, let me be frank with you. I, I don't want to pray with people I don't know. Um, I don't even know those people. Some of them are a different age than I am, and I'm a little bit intimidated. Can I just say, for the sake of the beauty of unity, take that bold, brave step of saying, I'm going to do it. It's not comfortable. It's a little bit intimidating. It's a little bit scary. I'm going to do it. You, I promise you this, you will be enriched. And I think the whole church would be enriched if we all make that choice, like the early followers of Jesus, to say, I'm joining in because I am part of this family. Not because I have to, but because I really want to. Because I want to feel like I belong. And I want to make other people feel like they're not alone. There's others of us. So I encourage you to join in some of the Zoom meetings that we have. You can also pray with your life group if you're part of a life group. It's so important. You could pick up the phone and pray with somebody over the phone. Or you could go at a socially distanced um, kind of range and stand in the porchway or stand on the other side of the fence and pray with somebody in the church. Just ring them and say, hey, I'm just going around. You can get your cup of tea and I'll get my mug my insulate mug, and we're going to stay together. We have a little natter from a distance, and then we're going to pray for one another. So there are so many ways to pray together. Let's not miss this opportunity. While we're in the waiting rooms of life, let's make sure that we pray. We make that choice to turn to God, because I think this would be absolutely sensational. In 1982, Billy Graham, who was a very famous Christian evangelist, probably the most famous Christian evangelist in, in our lifetime, was invited to, as a guest on the Today Show in New York City. And the, the team who organised the interview prepared a special room. And when Billy Graham's uh, representatives came, they, they said, we prepared a room for the Reverend to pray. And then the person who was one of his uh, directors thanked them for that wonderful gesture. But they said these words and the producer was quite shocked hearing these words. Mr. Graham, said the assistant, started praying when he got up this morning. He prayed while, all the, while he was eating his breakfast all through the day, prayed on the way here in the car and he'd be probably praying all the way through the interview. That's what I'm talking about. Prayer is not just ticking a box on a ritual, but living a life where my real life, with its pluses and minuses and ups and downs, are meeting with a real God who is connected, who is my Father, a real God who is interested and wants to hear, and also a real God who can do immeasurably more than I could ever, ever ask or imagine. That's the kind of prayer life that can help us in those waiting rooms, in those situations in our lives when things are tough, but not just when things are tough. So let's cultivate both individually and also together as a church 
that kind of prayer life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you are inviting us into this most wonderful conversation where we can talk and pour out our hearts with everything that is there. The joy, the thankfulness, the sorrow, the fears, the dreams. And we thank you that you are inviting us to do that. You love to hear from us and you also speak to us as we listen. I pray that you'll revolutionize our prayer lives. And I pray that we will discover more and more just how wonderful, how powerful and how life changing that can be. We are so grateful for this wonderful privilege. I pray right now for those who are in the waiting rooms of life, that they would discover that as they draw near to you, you draw near to them. Amen.